Well, we're talking about leadership this morning. We're spending three weeks um, in the section in 1 Timothy that deals with deacons. Last week was part one. This week is part two. Next week is part three, talking about spiritual leadership. If you had to make a list of like most famous and influential leaders that you know of throughout all of history, who would make that list? I have a feeling Teddy Roosevelt would be on that list somewhere, maybe in your top 10, at least in your top 20, right? Uh, what was it about Teddy that, that uh, makes him one of the most well-remembered, well-known leaders throughout history? Well, he was a man of action, right? Courage, purpose. What did he do? He helped the U.S. to emerge as a world power. He developed our Navy. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating peace between Japan and Russia. He completed the Panama Canal, and in his spare time, he enjoyed boxing, hiking, hunting on safari, and exploring uncharted rivers. This is a man, right? This is a leader. He died in 1919 in his sleep, and Vice President Marshall said, death had to take him sleeping, for if Roosevelt had been awake, there would have been a fight. Men like Roosevelt show us how a great leader can impact a nation, form an era, and fill history with a story worth reading. The church also needs strong leaders. The church needs leaders, though, who are more than just physically tough, mentally sharp. The church needs leaders, spiritual leaders, who can serve God's spiritual purposes. The church needs leaders who will serve God's mission to go and make disciples. And the church that is blessed with godly leaders who are chasing after God's priorities will be strong. And the church that is filled with leaders who are worldly, immature, and selfish, that church will not thrive. Our church needs to find these leaders and raise them up. Why? So that these leaders can go and make disciples. Last week, I shared with you a great definition of what a leader is at Harvest Palace. It's basically this. Someone who helps other people worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ. In a nutshell, that's spiritual leadership at Harvest Palace. You are making an eternal difference in the lives of other people by helping them to grow in their walk with Christ. That is leadership. But if you're going to influence the walk of others, you need to pursue spiritual maturity first. We're getting into part two here of what a leader is, what should a leader be about, and what kind of disciples should that leader make. Let's pray first, then we'll get into the Word together. Father, thank you for the leaders in this church, for their devotion to the gospel, their selfless service, their sacrifice, for all that you did in their hearts to produce maturity in likeness. Raise up more leaders, Lord. Fill this church with men and women who want to help others grow in their walk with you. We pray that the church would be stronger because of it. In your name, amen. In your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. little review says there, deacons likewise. And the deacons, remember last week, meant table waiter. So the, the, na- the word deacon is an office in the church, but it really just means table waiter. Service is at the heart of all spiritual leadership. It says, 1 Timothy 3, 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, That means earning respect for the gospel. Making the gospel look great. Not double-tongued. So we challenged last week, we challenged leaders to leave behind hypocrisy, being two-faced. 
And then it says not addicted to much wine. We talked about self-control in gray areas like alcohol and drinking, showing tremendous restraint as one form of spiritual maturity. Now we're moving on where it says in verse 8, not greedy for dishonest gain. The first thing that comes up to define spiritual maturity and describe leadership is money. You can write this down in your bulletin. Guard your heart against loving money. Guard your heart against loving money. Every leader is going to have to fight off the battle of greed. Every leader is going to have to choose not to serve money, but to serve Christ. And if that leader does make that choice, then the disciples around that leader will also learn that money is not everything. It says here, not greedy for dishonest gain. Underlying in the Greek there, basically the idea is there's this shameful, disgraceful, or dishonest component to how this man is desiring or acquiring money. Money's not sinful. Having it is not sinful. Spending it is not sinful. It's a neutral thing. You can sin with money. You can do great righteous things with money. And the Bible never establishes some, well, if you make over this income, if you enter into this income bracket, you are living with a sinful amount of... It's not what the Bible does. It just shows us how we can be righteous in how we make money, how we use it, multiply it, give it, right? It says here, though, that we're not supposed to be greedy for dishonest gain. Greedy. We're not greedy. I love cartoons, right? Because they always work in this greedy character to the cartoon programs. Check this out. Tell me who this is. Who is that? It's Mr. Krabs. Me money. How about the next one? Who's this? Who is that? Mr. Burns. Yeah. How about this next one? My generation. Come on. Who is that? (laughs) Scrooge McDuck swimming through it. Going for a swim in his money bin. Cartoons get it right, right? The greedy, money-loving, arrogant. The Bible says that we can't have leaders who are greedy for dishonest gain. Leaders have to grow out of love for money. Leaders have to learn how to love others with money, how to love God with money, not how to love money. If leaders don't grow out of their love for money, they'll damage the church. They'll make dangerous disciples who also justify loving money. And it's shameful when churches actually elevate greed as a virtue. There's a whole movement out there called the name it, claim it uh, gospel. It's a false gospel. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. They teach you if you come to Christ, he'll give you a free car. That Jesus is the source of material wealth in this world. Wait a minute, I thought the Bible did say something about gaining the whole world, right? What did it say? Did it say we're supposed to gain the whole world? No, wait a minute. It said, what good is it if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? And yet so many churches are set up to teach you how to gain the whole world through Christ. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He said, you're not even worth being a disciple unless you will leave everything behind and follow him. Jesus costs you everything. He doesn't promise you a money bin in this life, but some churches are set up to basically spiritualize greed. And it's shameful. We're supposed to be turning away from love for money, not fanning that flame. You know, in 1 Timothy 6, we already went through this passage, so I'm skipping around, there is a 
terrifying warning about what happens if you let love for money invade your heart. We'll put that on the screen. 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10 says, but those who desire to be rich fall into, listen to the words used in this passage, fall into temptation, into a snare, bear trap, into many, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Love for money is displayed in many ways. We will lay off the people, the guy this morning who is just struggling to manage his money well. Like the guy who's made some foolish choices and needs a lot of help budgeting. We're not talking about that guy today. Today we're talking about the man who loves money, who deep in the core of his being has a lust for more, who will do whatever it takes to get rich or to get more or to get better or to get newer stuff, the guy who loves money. In these verses, we find the downward spiral of where love for money will take you. It says that... uh, if you desire to be rich, you'll fall into temptation. So it begins with temptation. You can write this down. These are three stages of falling into uh, sinful greed. Stage one, this isn't in your bulletin. Stage one, you're tempted to make a sinful alliance with money. Tempted. Tempted to trust that money will bring you security and satisfaction. If you only have enough of it, you will be safe and you will be satisfied. If you are tempted to make this sinful alliance where you believe that money comes first, everything else comes second, God comes second or third or fourth or fifth, family, marriage, my health, whatever. If you make the exchange that you are willing to trade whatever for money, you're starting down a dangerous path. If money gets first place in line, And being at church, helping at church, being around your family, being with your wife, being healthy is all in line after money, which is first. You're going down a dangerous road. How do I know if I'm losing this initial battle with temptation? It's hard to see because it goes on inside a man's heart. But he's making career choices that automatically put him out of his own spiritual growth, being around his family and his kids because he wants more money. He perhaps begins to do shady or deceptive things. He's willing to cross over thresholds into sin or compromise to get more money. He's exchanging his integrity, small decisions first, big decisions next, because he's making a sinful alliance with money. What comes next? It says, then temptation, then it says, into a snare in 1 Timothy 6. Trap, into many senseless and harmful desires. Trapped, trapped. You're tempted to make a sinful alliance with money, you do it. Then money doesn't deliver, then you're trapped. Because money didn't deliver on its first promise, you begin begin to make foolish choices because you're stuck. Maybe you got the money you thought, but it didn't make you happy, so you go for more. Maybe it didn't work out, and now you're stuck, and so you need to somehow fix that problem, and so you choose foolishness. But you're trapped by foolishness or greed. More. What are symptoms of being trapped financially by foolishness or greed? 
more and more and more debt, a crushing load of debt. Because you didn't have your money, you kept borrowing other people's money because you thought that's what would solve your problems. Then once you were overspending and you had more and more debt, then you tried bad fixes like debt consolidation. Then broke out fights and arguments in your business or in your home when people started finding out what was going on. Then perhaps there's the choice for some Hail Mary business ventures that could maybe fix it all and make it go away or high-risk schemes. Then comes manipulating family because you're desperate. If you made it, but you're not happy, then comes flaunting your possessions to try and show off. All the while hiding sin, covering it up. The true nature of your heart. If it turns into an obsession, then comes gambling. Whatever it takes to get more, 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 more. You're trapped. You're trapped by greed or foolishness. You're trapped because money is making promises it can't keep. Money lies to you when you don't have it you just had me, you'd be safe and you'd be satisfied. Money lies to you when you do have it. Now that you've got me, you better keep me or you won't be safe or satisfied. Money lies to you. And money makes promises only God can keep. Now you're trapped because you believed a lie, made a sinful alliance with money. Then comes stage three. 1 Timothy 6 says, Harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You're tempted, you're trapped, and then stage three, you're torpedoed, ruined, and destroyed. Plunged is a word meaning plunged to the depths of the ocean, dragged down to the bottom of the sea because something you thought would bring security and safety and satisfaction was an explosive device coupled with sin that dragged your life and your marriage and your soul and your family down to the bottom. I found a video this week of a decommissioned destroyer being hit in a torpedo training exercise. What can a torpedo do to a full-size destroyer? Check this out. Let's watch again as the destroyer's 4 million pound steel hull is blown out of the water. Millions of Smoke erupts from the center of the ship. Why? Shock waves reduce the boat's midsection to a floating pile of debris. The ragged, twisted metal proves the lethal power of this modern war machine. Lethal power. Listen, love of money has lethal power to destroy your life. After hearing what these verses say, we should be terrified where money can take us when we let it direct our lives. What does it look like to be torpedoed, ruined, and destroyed? The greedy man would not stop chasing prosperity, hiding his sin. Round and around the monopoly board he goes. More money, more money. No restraint on his spending. Symptoms would be maxed out credit cards, making minimum payments. Can't make it. Then comes the health crisis or the car repair, the furnace breaks, and the ship sinks and the ship sinks then comes bankruptcy if there was sin there's jail losing your friends your marriage it's utter disaster because you love money we should be terrified where money will take us if we let money direct our lives we should be terrified where money will take our church if leaders are allowing money to direct their hearts Deacons in our church are in charge of facility finances and benevolence. Finances. Heaven forbid deacons should have a love of money burning in their heart when they're overseeing the finances 
given by God's people to be properly stewarded for the kingdom. Lethal, explosive power lurks in the heart of a leader who is greedy, who loves money. This was going on in Ephesus. There were greedy leaders who were using the gospel and the church to get their real God, which was money. They never grew out of a love for money. So teaching and preaching and serving and leaving was a way to get more of their God, which was money. They used it all to get money. Hey, how are you doing it? Beating back the lies in your heart that money is telling you. How are you doing it turning away from a love for money? Do you realize, do you realize what's true? Do you realize that if you wake up tomorrow morning and you give all of your money away and you still have Christ, you will be secure and satisfied in this life? Do you believe that? Do you believe you can let it all go and if he asked you to, you would? And you would still live safe and satisfied? Stop believing the lies money is telling you. It can't deliver. Only your God can. And heaven forbid you are nursing and cherishing a love for money and expecting to be a leader in this church. Heaven forbid the damage you can do to this church. Guard your heart against loving money. Well, it says here, not greedy for dishonest gain. Then it goes on to say this. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So write this down. Maintain a clear conscience in your faith. Maintain it. You want to be a leader? You want to grow up to be a leader? You want to be a great leader and set an example? Maintain a clear conscience in your faith. It's important to understand that while this text is aimed at deacons, we only have two deacons right now in our church. So it's not like only two guys should be listening to this sermon right now. The rest of you can go to sleep. This is describing what spiritual maturity looks like. Right? You understand that? So the leader is supposed to be a display of what you're becoming. So this is for you. You're supposed to maintain a clear conscience in your faith too. All right, a little confusing here. It says, hold the mystery of the faith. What is the mystery of the What is this? Like a secret? Whisper it to me. What is the mystery of the faith? Thankfully, it tells us right in this book. Look down to verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So the mystery is now revealed. It's basically the truth about Jesus. Uh, So the mystery of the faith, just to be clear, is the truth about Jesus. Therefore, a spiritual leader needs to believe the truth about Jesus. He needs to embrace what is said about the Lord. Now, what is the truth about Jesus? Well, since, since the Bible here is kind of honing in on money and finances, there's actually a verse in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 that puts the gospel in financial terms. So we'll put that on the screen. I want you to say this with me, okay? Say this with me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Richest man in the universe, leaving behind the treasures of heaven. Why? So that through his poverty, you might become eternally rich. See, so the man who loves money and chases after it and uses the church and the pulpit to get money is not acting Christ-like. Jesus left it all behind to save people. He did what's in their best interest. The Bible teaches blatantly that Jesus is the pathway to true lasting riches. And I mean spiritual and I mean physical. Spiritual, 
Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us in Christ Jesus. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. There's no other treasure in heaven left. God dumped it all into his son. And if you have Christ, you have everything. If you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. But physical blessings, material treasures, those are there too. Heaven is a luxurious city. Right? Have you read the descriptions of heaven in the book of Revelation? Like beautiful jewels everywhere, streets of gold. It's materially treasure-filled. Right? You think you're rich. You think you have a lot of money. You think you've done well in business. Your driveway isn't even paved in gold. Let alone your street. Let alone your city filled with streets. Let alone a whole world filled with cities, filled with streets of gold. Jesus is the pathway to material prosperity. We get into trouble when, we, when we're taught that that's going to happen in this life. Jesus is your jackpot. And you're going to get, no, in this world you'll have trouble. But let's not be ashamed of what's coming in the next life. It's an amazing place heaven is. So we have to know the mystery of the faith. The mystery of the faith is Jesus is the treasure from heaven. He's the way to lasting eternal spiritual and physical riches. He is the truth. Now, once we have that, we have to hold on to that truth with a clear conscience. Conscience is a big word in this book. In chapter 1, verse 5, it mentions, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we're supposed to have a good conscience. In verse 19, it says we're supposed to be holding faith and a good conscience. And rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. In chapter 4, verse 2, it says um, that there are some through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And then it goes on to list what these false teachers are doing. So Timothy was actually left in Ephesus because there were these leaders who were selfish, who were greedy, and, and they were teaching a different gospel, and they were messing with people on the rules of the faith. Their consciences were seared, and they were tinkering with the consciences of other people. Timothy was supposed to come in with a good conscience and a sincere faith in the true gospel and confront them and restore leadership in this town. The word used in the Bible for what they were doing to their consciences were seared. It means to brand with a red-hot iron. Check this out. This is a branding iron. And imagine just taking that and touching what? Your hand? Anywhere. That's what they do to their conscience. They sear it. They brand it as with a red-hot iron so that it's no longer functioning properly. That's what false teachers were doing in Ephesus. They were not maintaining a clear conscience in the faith. Let's talk about conscience for a little bit. This came up in the book before, so some of this is review. But you were born with a conscience. It's like an intercom that announces moral feedback to your choices. And you are given this moral feedback on the inside before, during, and after your sin. Your kids have a conscience too. Sometimes if you watch them real closely, you can see their conscience before they do a wrong thing. Mom said no more dessert, but there's an ice cream sandwich right there. I want it. No, I can't have it. I want it. No, I can't. Their conscience is like, you're going to get in trouble, but I want it. And then... Kids start messing with their conscience, just like grown-ups do, and they eat the ice cream sandwich. During and after, there's also moral feedback by your conscience. You shouldn't have done that. You're going to get in trouble. Oh, no, I'm a terrible person. That's your conscience. 
God has written his law on our hearts, which means he will not let you go through this life sinfully without there being this internal voice giving you moral feedback. That's your conscience. It's an intercom. What do we do, though? We, of course, don't want this moral feedback while we're enjoying our sin. So we first begin to ignore our conscience. Well, maybe if I just ignore it, it'll go away. You're doing the wrong thing. You shouldn't be not just going to ignore it. Well, then it doesn't go away. So you start to reason with it. Conscience? Many people do what I'm about to do. You should just leave me alone. People in my generation think differently than you. We should reasoning with your conscience, justifying your sin. And then when that doesn't work, you begin to argue with your conscience. Well, I have every right to do this. And then finally, when you're bent on sinning and your conscience won't shut up, you take a red-hot poker and shove it down the throat of your conscience so that it no longer bothers you. If we're honest, we'll admit it, we all desire to sin without internal commotion. We want to silence all internal debate. That's the scariest place to be when you see somebody who claims to be a Christian or maybe not, and they are comfortable in their sin. There's no longer the internal fight anymore. Whatever they call it, I'm at peace with it. I've prayed about it. I know my God loves However they get there, they've gotten to a place where they've dismantled their conscience and they're sinning without shame. That's a dangerous place to be. These false teachers were messing with their own consciences and they were messing with other people's consciences. And they were leading people into sin and they were changing the way they viewed right and wrong. When I think of a conscience, I think of like a smoke detector. So I've got a smoke detector here. Uh, A smoke detector is supposed to announce to you when something is going wrong in your house, right? The pizza's been in the oven for too long. Friendly smoke detector comes along and starts telling you, you're going to burn down your house. Better get to the oven fast. This isn't going to end well. Now you can ignore it. Or you can say, this is going to help me have a better day. This is your conscience. You could be like, I don't like that beeping, annoying noise. How do I get the battery out of this thing? Just turn it off. You can tamper with it. That's not going to make the problem go away. Right? It's here for a reason. Now imagine that this is your conscience. There's two ways to tamper with your conscience. First is, let's say there is a burning pizza in the oven and this is going off and you just go like... In other words, there is a problem and you shut your conscience off. The house is going to burn down, but you turn it off and don't listen to it. That's tampering with your conscience. Conscience is saying, shouldn't be doing this, and you just shut it off. But there's another way you can tamper with your conscience. There's another way leaders can tamper with your conscience, and that is when there is nothing wrong. You're not doing anything wrong, and yet they set it off. See, now, if you grew up in more of a legalistic church where they tried to regulate everything about your faith, guess what they did? Push it again. Something sinful is going on in there. She's wearing denim. Her hair is longer than her shoulders. Push the button. There must be something wrong. Beep. Sinning. 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 You went to movies? Sinning. Sinning. And it's like, wait a minute. The Bible doesn't say these things are wrong. See? So I'm messing with your conscience. I'm alerting you to a sin that isn't really found in the Bible. That's manipulation. But then, if you went to more of a liberal church 
and something black and white in the Bible that is spelled out is happening, and this is going on, sins, and you're like, it's not sinful. Maybe if you went to more of a liberal church, there were sin areas that were redefined. Wait, God's word says this is wrong. Yeah, that's what it used to say. That's what people used to believe, but we're just going to turn this off now. We're going to let that sin go. That's how people manipulate the conscience. When there's a sin, they turn it off. When there's not a sin, they turn it on. And in Ephesus, there were good, well-meaning people who were being challenged to believe things were false when they weren't. Hey, guard your heart against loving money. And maintain a clear conscience in your faith. When it comes to your conscience, just ask yourself, is there anything that is just alerting you that there's something wrong right now, something going on, something that you need to bring into the light, something sinful that you need to address. The conscience isn't perfect. It needs to be informed by God's Word. So you could go to someone and say, hey, I'm just really aching with guilt over this. What do you think? And they might say, well, here's what God's Word says. You shouldn't even be worried about that. Or you bring it out into the light, you ask for help, and then someone's like, yeah, you know what? I'm so glad you told me so that we can get you help with this. But you can't ignore that internal alarm. God put it there for a reason. Leaders will be very sensitive to this. They'll want to make sure that they do whatever they can to not bring shame on the gospel. They'll be very sensitive when their conscience is going off. Number one, guard your heart against loving money. Number two, maintain a clear conscience in your faith. Number three, write this down, pass the test. Pass the test. It says here in 1 Timothy 3, Not greedy for dishonest gain. Hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And then verse 10, let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons. There's this idea that the leaders have to kind of pass tests before they're put in charge of things. Meaning you have to see them uh, go through some sort of a trial or something hard so that you know, wow, they're legit. They're mature. They're godly. They're walking the walk. You can't just assume. You have to actually see it happen um, in some way. When it comes to a test or a trial or some sort of way that you can prove that you're genuine, um, at some of these business conferences, maybe you've seen this, they challenge people to to do something daring. This is a picture of what they do sometimes, to maybe walk across this path of hot coals to test yourself and prove that you've got the gusto that it takes to succeed in business. Here's another picture. You know, it's like a trial. Can you do it? Can you get across this? No, it's going to be hard. You want to know it's even harder, though, than walking across hot coals? Check out this one. This is called the Lego fire walk. (laughs) That's even harder. Can you make it across? And if you're a parent with a young child, if you step on a Lego for for 10 seconds after you step on a Lego, you're not a Christian. (laughs) Whatever you say will not be held against you in God's court of judgment. It's a free pass because of the pain. You've got to pass the test. When pain comes into your life, some challenge or conflict, you've got to pass. There has to be this displayed strength. There has to be this ability to display that you're mature. Do you know that God tests your faith? It's biblical. There are times in your life where you have to step back and say, God is testing me. Jeremiah 17.10 says this, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Why is he testing you? It's not like he doesn't know what's going on in your heart. It's like he's sitting there with popcorn like, how's this going to end? I just don't know. He knows. 
He tests you to show what's in your heart, to bring it to light. He tests you to strengthen your faith, to grow your faith, to prove it genuine, to display it to others. God tests your faith. In 2 Chronicles 32-31, Hezekiah was a great king, and it says this, And so in the manner of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the signs, there was a great miracle done, and they checked it out, and been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and know all that was in his heart. God stepped away from Hezekiah to see what he would do. It was a test. And he failed the test. He showed off all of his riches to these folks from Babylon and he flaunted his wealth and he failed the test. And he brought judgment on himself. Why does God test us? Well, when he, he tests us because a stronger believer comes out the other side. Somebody who knows God better, serves God better, loves God more, trusts God more. So the church should be doing the same thing. We should be putting aspiring leaders to the test. We should be giving these people who could be leaders responsibility and then watching. Do they display maturity or immaturity? There are many things that we look for, but if I had to make a short list, here are some ways that we've just watched people who maybe want to be small group leaders or deacons or elders or whatever. The big one is, how do they go through a trial? Any sort of crisis, whatever brings suffering, do they hold it together? Do they drop out? Are they not at church anymore? Do they lash out with anger? I mean, how do they hold it together when they're going through a trial? See, when you're squeezed, that brings your heart out. Shows who you really are. Another big one is how do they resolve conflict? When they get mad, when someone gets mad at them, I sit there and I just watch. Can they resolve conflict? Can they humbly, graciously, peacefully bring peace Two, a small deal. It takes great maturity to display conflict resolution. Another test that we have is can you even lead a small group? Can you take 10 or 15 people and just shepherd them and move them forward, love them, care for them? Uh, somebody who's not in a small group will, will never be a leader in our church because that's your way of saying I'm serious about my spiritual growth. If you're not even in a small group, you'll never lead anything here. If you can lead a small group, that's a really great start to leading other things. We also watch, see how a potential leader serves on a team. Do they work well with others? Do they listen? Do they have to get their way? When somebody doesn't agree with them, how do they respond to that? How do they function in a group? How do they function on a team? Are they bossy? Are they inconsiderate? Or are they peaceable? What happens when their opinion is rejected? Can they submit to a group decision or policy they don't agree with? Or do they have to get their way? You know, when we, elder when we interview elders or deacons, one other thing that we do, or potential pastors, is we just sit with an open Bible and we just talk. What do you believe about God? Show me. What do you believe about Jesus? Show me. Show me what you believe about the Bible. Tell me about the end times. We just talk through the book. If, if I wanted to become a Christian, where, how would you lead me to Christ? Just open Bible. Just hour, hour and a half. Tell me. What does the Bible teach about sin? What about spiritual warfare? Just show me. You just go around the book and we see if the person knows their way around their Bible. This is a test. This is a way that we just kind of look into the person's life and faith. We try and find out if they're capable of leading. So pass the test. Be faithful with small things. You will be put in charge of larger things. We affectionately call this the brownie test behind the scenes at Harvest. 
early on when we were working hard to launch a church, we didn't even have a church. We had like 30 people who were working hard to launch this church back in 2009. And uh, people would show up. They'd be like, we're going to help you. We're on the team. And so the first thing I would do is I'd say, okay, great. Can you bring brownies to our next launch team meeting? We just need snacks. And that's called the brownie test. And if the person was like, oh, I'm so busy. I don't even have the time. I just can't even bring brownies. Then I'm like, fail. If you can't even bring brownies, you're really not going to be able to help us launch a church because it's going to be a lot of hard work. So that's caught on. And now behind the scenes, we use, you know, we use the phrase brownie test. Well, have you given them a brownie test yet? Meaning asking them to do something small and manageable. And then just watching. Do they get it done? Do they do it with joy? Are they reliable? Do they... It's the brownie test. So pass the test. Guard your heart against loving money. Maintain a clear conscience in your faith. Here's the last one. This is a summary term. Be above reproach. Be above reproach. It says here in chapter 3, verse 9, Holding to the faith, the mystery of the faith, with a clear conscience, let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. That's a great word. The word blameless uh, has the idea that you can't quite get a grip on them. Like, if you really wanted to to find something in their life that's a disqualifier. You just can't, it's right, I just, it, I, he, you can't put your finger on it. You can't grab hold of an obvious disqualifying sin in this man's life because he's above reproach. He's blameless. Um, he's pursued spiritual maturity over an extended period of time. So there's no glaring disqualification in his life. Now, I want to be careful here. I want you to know what I'm not saying, what the Bible is not saying. To be blameless, to be above reproach, does not mean you're perfect. There are no men or women in this church who are perfect. This doesn't mean, well, this person's got everything together. It's not what it means. It also doesn't mean that we find leaders who are pretending to be perfect. Oh, my discipleship is all done. Download complete. Now I can help you because you're really messed up. And sadly, in many churches, leaders have this like finished complex, like my discipleship is over. Now I can help you. And it's proud and arrogant and false. We do not look for people who pretend to be perfect. That's not what it means to be blameless. In fact, we need leaders who know that they're not perfect. We need leaders who have huge ears to hear feedback about their choices. We need leaders who can take a punch, who you can sit down with and say, hey, listen, brother, I I don't know if you know this, but I, I saw this in your life, and I think you really need to work on it. We need leaders who will hear that, receive that, and then go to work letting God fix that. We can't have leaders who shut their ears closed whenever there's any feedback of their life. Check this out. This is a kid who's having a hard time hearing. I can't hear you. And and if you go to someone and you're like, dude, I think this is an area you can really improve. I can't hear you. Anybody who just doesn't have ears to hear correction can't be a leader. Anybody who shuts their ears like the gates of Mordor when you try and tell them how they can do better in faith is not fit to be a leader. Leaders have to be open peaceable, reasonable to feedback. When someone's like, dude, I think, I think this is going really wrong in your life. Leaders have to be like, I'm so thankful you told me it hurts, but I'm glad you brought it to me and I'm going to take it to the Lord. I'm going to let him go to work. That's a leader. That's a leader isn't like, ha ha, I'm done. You're messed up. Come to me and I shall help you. 
Any leader in our church who starts getting this whole I'm finished complex, I just walk right up, I just push him right off the pedestal like Humpty Dumpty. I will lay into that leader and let him know how far he still has to go in this life, right? We don't want leaders who are pretending to be perfect because if that attitude gets into their heart, then you go to them and you try and correct something, guess what? They don't want to hear it. Oh, I'm perfect. Who are you to tell me how I need to change? I'm a leader. I, uh, I saw this hilarious video this past week of uh, a conversation going on between a man and an animal. And the conversation isn't going so well. I just want you to think, have you ever had to have a conversation with someone about their sin and it didn't go so well? So check this out. This conversation between a reporter and animal isn't going so well. Zapatero, ¿qué opina usted del gobierno de Zapatero? Pues igual que yo. ¿Y qué opina usted? ¿Qué opina usted? ¿Qué opina usted del gobierno canario? ¿Y de los ayuntamientos de la isla? I love that. Whenever there's somebody who we think might be a leader, you just bring them some feedback, and if they're like, ah! Ah! then you know they're not ready to be a leader yet. Every parent is laughing because they're like, that's how my kids respond when I say, you need to, ah! stick the tongue out. I want to be careful to be above reproach, to be blameless doesn't mean these leaders are perfect. Far, far from it. And a leader with a perfection complex is a dangerous leader. I don't want you to think, oh, our leaders and elders and deacons are walking around, they got it all together. If only I could be like them. No. No. But they're willing to listen. They're willing to grow. They're willing to respond to feedback. And so they continue to mature. This isn't original to me, but we say... At Harvest, feedback is the breakfast of champions. And these leaders are growing. A man who's blameless is experiencing an extended victory over sin. His season of victory over besetting sins is long. He relates well to others. He resolves conflict. He confesses his failure. His spiritual disciplines are in order. He's mature. He's not perfect. He's still growing. He's humble. And so he's blameless. This is God's will for every Christian. This is a definition of spiritual maturity. We're supposed to be above reproach. We're supposed to pass the test, whatever God leads us through. We're supposed to have a clear conscience in our faith. We're supposed to guard our heart against loving money. This is God's will for you. This is God's will for me. We need to ask the Lord to build these virtues into our heart so that we can produce strong leaders who will then make disciples. This is his way. This is God's plan. And if we get after these things by his spirit, and we let his spirit go to work, developing these strengths in our heart, we'll be a strong church. And if we get away from these things and we allow these sins to start creeping into our heart, we justify them and let leaders get away with anything, it's going to tear our church apart. So join me right now as we close it. Join me in prayer for our current leaders and for our future leaders and for our own personal spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father, your love is amazing. We know that you are so patient with us. We desperately need your grace because we don't deserve, Lord, we don't deserve to lead. We don't deserve to carry your sandals around, Jesus. But you have given some of us the the great honor of 
leading others. And we're not worthy of that. We thank you, Lord, that by your Spirit, you have produced in us the fruit that displays Christ's likeness. But we give you all the glory. We don't have any righteousness on our own, but we know you've built this into our hearts. I just pray for our current leaders, Lord, that you would help them to stand strong in their battles with sin, to display righteous decisions, to help those around them to move forward in faith. I pray for those leaders who you're raising up, Lord, those who you're tapping on the shoulder and saying, I want you to do more. I've got bigger things for you. May they embrace that calling. I pray for those who are going through the test right now. They don't know why. They don't know why they're going through this. But hopefully, according to your word now, they understand that it does serve a purpose. May they pass. May they make it through to the other side. May they allow your spirit to go to work in their hearts. May they not resent that you are treating them as sons and daughters, disciplining them and growing them. And Lord, we just pray that you would raise up more leaders in this church to help others grow in faith and in devotion to you. Raise up humble, godly men and women devoted to your work, free from the love of money, able to resolve conflict, open to peaceable feedback. Raise these men and women up, Lord. Produce leaders in this church so that we would be strong. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.